Before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge that before Los Angeles ever existed, this land belonged to the Tongva people and was stolen by European colonists. We came to the water found by the captain and his scouts yesterday. It is another river in another lush green valley, no wise inferior to the last two. Its bed, not deeply sunken below the surrounding ground, runs through a very green, lush, widespreading valley. We have proclaimed it El Rio y Valle de Nuestra Señora de los Ángeles de la Porciúncula. I'm walking down Owensmouth Avenue in Canoga Park towards a small concrete bridge. It's a very familiar landscape. An overturned shopping cart on my left, wheels rusted in place. In the distance, a brand new apartment complex. Beyond that, a vacant lot. Above me, the faded blue of mid-September. When I reach the middle of the bridge, I come to a stop. In front of me, two identical concrete channels, each about 15 feet deep, merge into the larger concrete channel passing under my feet. Where they meet, they form a jarring, brutalist symmetry, like a whale's tail fin, but stone, unmoving. I find it beautiful, this confluence of concrete and water in sky. El Rio de Los Angeles, the Los Angeles River. A small green sign informs me that I'm standing at the headwaters, the point where the river officially begins. Like most Angelinos, I've driven across the river thousands of times on the 134, the 5, the 101, and the 110 but I feel like a stranger now that I'm standing over it, watching its slanted concrete banks vanish into the Verdugo Mountains. I want to know it, to really understand it. So I'm traveling down the river, from its source to the ocean. The history of Los Angeles and the history of its river are deeply intertwined. In pre-colonial times, the river was the lifeblood of the entire region, a fertile and verdant strip strewn across an otherwise arid region. It supported the largest indigenous population in North America. Being about seven varas wide where we crossed it, it is not deep. It flows from the north-northwest out of the high mountains nearby. This is Father Juan Crespi, a Franciscan missionary who arrived in Alta California in 1767. It is a most handsome garden, and in time to come, there may be a very large and rich mission here of Our Lady of the Angels of the Porciúncula. Sixteen years later, El Pueblo de Los Angeles stood less than a mile from the river. The river provided settlers with drinking water and fertilized their crops. For a long time, things stayed like this. The river nourished the small ranch town. Then, railroads came to Los Angeles, 
with the completion of the Southern Pacific Line in 1876. At the time, just over 5,000 people called LA home. 30 years later, in 1900, the population had increased to over 100,000 people. The agrarian economy began to give way to commercial interests. Technological means are enabling the construction of bridges and enabling people to pave all the way to the, to the edge of the banks. Catherine Gudis, professor of history at UC Riverside, explains that as Los Angeles moved into the 20th century, the orange groves disappeared, but the image of the orange grove was spread far and wide. So LA is selling itself as this, you know, as this Mediterranean idyll a kind of an urban cosmopolitan place, but with that whole um, Mediterranean climate and appearance that was seen as bucolic and was seen as a way to recover from the industrial fallout that, had, that people were recognizing from other cities. Land becomes the most valuable resource as the city expands, replacing dirt with concrete. Real estate moguls looking to line their pockets engage in speculative development along the river. A river looking less and less like its former self. It became a laughingstock. You know, you can kind of see some, there are a couple of cartoons from the early 20th century where, um, you know, the river is dry and there's all kinds of like um, honky-tonk stuff going on in its, in its bed because it's been dried out by, you know, the barrage of people who have now come to rely on its water. Down in Los Angeles, they have a dry bed of sand which is proudly labeled on all the maps Los Angeles River. There is not enough water there in which to wash your feet. The LA City Council should take steps to convert this riverbed into a place of beauty rather than the disgraceful dumping ground and weed patch that it now is. People wanted to change the river, to utilize it in some way, but no one could agree what to do or who had the authority to do so. The city engineer can float the riverbed out of its official and natural channel to suit himself by including a ledge of rocks. The Chamber of Commerce of San Pedro does protest against the diversion of the normal flow of the Los Angeles River and asks that your honorable body protect the citizens of this district by having the river left in its existing channel. A mysterious businessman even asked for a lease on the river to build roads on top of it. Applicant proposed to build a $5 million superstructure and cover it with tracks. But then, in the winter of 1938, before any deals could be signed... The lights of old Los Angeles was a-flickering, oh, so bright. A cloud first hit the mountains, it swept away our homes. And a hundred souls was taken in. That fatal New Year's flood. The, the flood just over, they, they overtook um, bridges. It became, you know, an angry, swirling water mass just trying to, you know, retake land that had been paved by roadways and where houses were and where bridges were. The river wasn't so idyllic anymore. You know, that model of, you know, everyone having their own bungalow and the sort of bucolic scene around it, given its climate, was, you know, radically disrupted by um, the loss of control over the very environment that was so essential to the way in which L.A. was selling itself. Something had to be done. So the progressive-era politicians did what they thought was, well, progressive. 
They paved the river to match the rest of the city. Three and a half million barrels of concrete and 150 million pounds of reinforced steel later. And the Army Corps of Engineers had done the impossible. They had domesticated the river's wild spirit and cleared the way for a brighter future. Or so they thought. Their cement monstrosity didn't age well. It became an eyesore, a notorious symbol of Los Angeles's urban blight, and a favorite of Hollywood directors looking for abused and apocalyptic scenery. Productions like Grease, American Horror Story, and Terminator 2 shot pivotal scenes in the river. Beyond these fleeting moments of infamy, the city turned away from the river and the people who lived along its banks. I'm downstream now, biking along the river. To my right, the Five Freeway. Cars idling in rush hour traffic, Griffith Park towering overhead. To my left, on the opposite bank, a maze of warehouses. I'm on my way to Elysian Valley to meet with Stephen Appleton. Wow, I uh, have been living by the LA River for more than 18 years. We sit down at Stephen's small plot of land along the river, tucked away between some old industrial spaces and the river bike path. He has no permanent buildings in this space, only a few tables and chairs, four young cottonwood trees, and a couple dozen kayaks stacked in the corner. I'm immediately struck by how the river looks here. It was like this. Some of these willows have gotten massive now, though. I mean, look at that sucker over there. That's got to be 100 feet tall. It's almost beyond recognition. Islands overgrown with willows, reeds, and sycamores dot the channel. Birds fly overhead. There's our osprey over there, by the way. See him over there? Right up here. See that? Yeah, there's fishing. He's fishing. So uh, it looks yeah. like an actual so river. Anyhow, um, the LA River, it really wasn't uh, something I was thinking about as a concept until um, one day I just uh, hopped the fence, went down in the river, and went, wow. <laughs> you know, I'm here, I'm seeing uh, blue herons, and I'm seeing all this wildlife, and I'm very close to the middle of the city, and it was, uh, it was kind of a reverie for me. Stephen explains that this is one of the few soft-bottom regions of the river, places where the channel wasn't fully paved, leaving a muddy, earthy bottom. The Army Corps of Engineers tried to pave it, of course, but they couldn't. The water table was too high and the concrete wouldn't set. From the soft bottom sprang new life. Novel ecological systems emerged. Birds and amphibians whose habitats were destroyed by the encroaching cement of a growing Los Angeles found new homes here. This, is, this river here, by all measures, in this way should not be here. The intention was for this not to be here because this was channelized. This wasn't supposed to happen. But yeah, it's just that. Nature was persistent. This is, a, this is an accident of nature. But this isn't just about nature. The culture of L.A. has been to treat the L.A. River as an environmental wasteland and a cultural wasteland. Robert Garcia, civil rights attorney and founder 
of the city project. If you ride up and down the river from Vernon to downtown, there's actually wonderful little communities and houses, you know, with chickens and roosters and farm animals growing right there along the river. The river here is cement, but the banks are springing with life. After the river was paved, this region became a place of industry. As property in the city became more and more valuable, marginalized communities, primarily working-class Latinx and Black Angelinos, were pushed to the river's edge. The cement trench and industrial air pollution weren't appealing to wealthier residents. People of color and low-income people disproportionately live along the river. But just like the nature in Elysian Valley, the communities here persisted and built something strong out of the scraps the city had left for them. Irma Munoz, president, CEO, and founder of Mujeres de la Tierra, explains that they turned the river from a burden to a cultural resource. Around here, along the Alley River, you can find generations of families who've been here, first, second, and third generations. I had met two middle-aged men who said they had fished in the river since they were little kids, and it was their father that took them there, and then their grandfather took their father. So you kind of see these di- different cultural threads along different stretches, right? Catherine Gudis so again. Area, you know, I talked to tons of people who have been multi-generationally um, involved in um, horses and in the stables there. Folks who have these, you know, vaquero traditions. For years, these communities utilized the river. And for years, they called for a cleaner, safer, and more accessible river. But for a long time, their voices went unheard. Until... From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. The jury in the Rodney King case has delivered its verdict, and not one of the four police officers seen on videotape beating Mr. King a year ago is guilty of using excessive force. It was a clean sweep for the defendants. Not guilty, the verdict for all of them. That the jury in Simi Valley gave the okay to continue to abuse and oppress and suppress black people in this country. The system is rotten to the core. No justice, no peace is what they're chanting. Angry mobs set scores of fires in the predominantly black south central part of the city. There were so many blazes. Uh, as we've been driving through the area, we've seen uh, dumpster fires. We've seen uh, people throwing uh, what looked like Molotov cocktails. Thousands of federal army troops and national guardsmen are trying to restore order on city streets. President Bush has declared L.A. a disaster area, allowing federal funds to help repair the damage. The 1992 riots rocked the city. When the last of the fires were put out, Los Angeles was changed forever. Suddenly, questions of race and justice were at the forefront of city politics. Soon these questions made their way to a small, undeveloped plot of land called the Cornfields between Chinatown and the L.A. River. This cornfield, 32 acres, is the last possibility for Chinatown to develop. Chimoy and other activists saw it as an opportunity to address racial and economic inequity. We should have green space, open space. We should have a middle school here, the downtown Central Park for L.A. But Majestic Realty Company had different plans. They wanted to build the River Station Business Park, 900,000 square feet of warehouses and industrial manufacturing space. And they had City Hall support. 
Xochimoy, along with poet activist Louis McAdams and USC professor Arthur Golding, founded the Chinatown Yard Alliance, a coalition of over 30 community and environmental organizations. Two lawsuits later, one of which was headed by Robert Garcia, and the cornfields were on their way to becoming the Los Angeles State Historic Park. It was a transformative moment in the history of L.A. for people, for planning, and for parks. And that decision launched the Green Justice Movement. Seemingly an acknowledgement of past mistakes, of systematic neglect and abuse, the city released the Los Angeles River Revitalization Master Plan in 2007, setting forward a vision of a more just and green future for the L.A. River and the people who lived along its banks. You may find a rock to get stuck on or just practice in here if you don't want to fight the Full of hope and excitement, I enter the river, climbing aboard a kayak in Elysian Valley. To my right, a wall of trees overflows with life. To my left, an old rail yard sits, flaunting its aged industrial beauty. They clash wonderfully. But then... I hurriedly tuck away my recorder and my life vest. I try to steer my way around the rocks, but they're everywhere. I feel the hard stones scraping against my plastic pipe. This isn't going to be easy. There are huge cash investors buying up land along the river, playing Monopoly with land along the river. Hip cafes, flashy new housing renovations. Million dollar condos. This renewed interest in the river is attracting speculative real estate and rising rents. And what's happening is they're finding neighborhoods that are on the poorer side, and they're revitalizing them so they can make homes much more expensive. But it's not just the look of the neighborhoods that are changing. It's the people, too. There's one lady in particular who had been living there 13 years, and she got, like, almost a $2,000 raise a month to rent a house. And she says, we can't afford it. And she says, why are you doing that? And the lady said to her, because I can. If you live there and you lose your house, Your neighbor does too, and the neighbor does across the street, and everybody in the neighborhood does. So there's no longer a neighborhood. And you all don't just pack up and move the entire neighborhood lock, stock, and barrel to the Inland Empire or someplace. That way of life is dissipated. Your family connections, your neighborhood connections, your connection to the local grocer, it's all gone. This is all beginning to feel a bit familiar. There was a moment where it was just all full speed ahead with all of us and where it all felt good. But things changed. The struggle for control unfolds before me. Army Corps of Engineers right now is trying to do a sediment removal project just upstream here at the front end of the kayak put in in this area. That project was not properly publicized. It's not on Army Corps' website. 
I had 13 days to make my public comment, as did a lot of other people. And the Army Corps of Engineers planned to remove sediment buildup just north of the verdant islands of Elysian Valley would disrupt Stephen's kayak business. And in terms of how they were going to do this without harming existing habitat, this isn't the first time Stephen and the Army Corps have clashed. Three years ago, the Army Corps began using a synthetic herbicide to remove Arunda, an invasive species of reed. A few months later, Stephen stopped hearing the nightly frog calls. He hasn't heard them since. We just have not yet aligned. The last two years, we've had this Arundo cutting with herbicides that have knocked down a sentinel species. And then we go upstream, and there's a sediment removal project that had scant public feedback and would have uh, closed down the public access. Are we thinking that we're working with what's here and breaking banks and opening areas and reshaping things, or are we planning to cut this down to zero and start over? The Army Corps, in his opinion, wants the latter. You know, the LA River is open because of uh, some kind of soft forms of civil disobedience, and we may be there again. But this isn't just a top-down struggle between government and civilians. Um, There's people who really have a very fierce ownership of the river. And yeah, they want to portray the river as dirty and a bad thing so that people don't come to their neighborhoods and see the river and kayak and bike ride and mm-hmm. cause gentrification and parking issues. And Joanna Hackett, kind of partnership manager at Friends of the Los Angeles River, tells me that residents along the river are pushing back against her organization's efforts to beautify and restore it. They show up at events with picket signs, and tell attendees they're not welcome along the river's banks. Nobody enjoys being displaced. Nobody. It's sort of, again, like an accidental, you know, thing that happened that, you know, when we made this river beautiful, our intention wasn't to um, have any sort of negative impact like that. Traditional environmental organizations kind of got um, blindfolds a um, lot of their policies create poverty because they focus on the natural elements and improving them at the expense of people and communities. Irma doesn't want revitalization efforts to stop, but she demands justice for the communities being negatively impacted. The water calms again, and I barely manage to catch my breath. I feel lost. Almost like I'm right back where I started. Speculative real estate, warring parties struggling for control, a neglected river mocked by the public. I beach my kayak at a clearing in the dense thicket along the river and stumble out. I look downstream and see the monolithic five freeway passing over the river. Cement towering over water. Are we destined to make the same mistakes we made 80 years ago? I can feel the water rising around me. Progress doesn't flow like a river, from headwaters to sea. But neither does a river, really. Sometimes it goes backwards, upwards, overflows its banks, reaches across the landscape and strips us of our bearings. 
of our control. And when it settles, will its new path flow through million-dollar condos, gated communities, an extensively curated playground for the rich? Or will its banks be alive with vibrant art, public parks, and community gardens? Will the fishermen and vaqueros remain? Will the hundred-foot-tall willows reach higher? And on warm summer nights, will the frogs call once again? Kind friend, do you remember on that fatal New Year's night? The lights of old Los Angeles was a flickering oh so bright. A cloud burst hit the mountains, it swept away our homes. And a hundred souls was taken in that fatal New Year's flood. Was in the early springtime of 1934. The waters filled the canyons through the city poured. Our little tot was sleeping and the town was bright and gay. We could not see the sorrow of that.